Let's pray. How can we not pray after that song? Let's uh, come before the Lord. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for our friend, our friend indeed, who died uh, for us. And Father, pray that this morning as we look into your word, Father, help us to see afresh and wonder uh, all that he has done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I add my welcome to Richards? You'll find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. Now, I wonder if you saw uh, this over Christmas time. Apologies, I know it's Easter. I haven't got mixed up with the the year. But uh, over Easter, there was an advert uh, on television. It went a bit like this. But uh, I wonder if you, as we look at this passage here, as we consider uh, Jesus' burial, I wonder whether you think this is a bit like the Easter limbo. You know what I mean? So we talk a lot about the cross, don't we? We talk a lot about the the resurrection. But this is the bit in between. Uh, This is the part that we don't often talk about. This is the time uh, before Jesus rises again. Uh, He's died, but now he's going to come back to life later on. But here he is uh, in the tomb. But what we're going to see, actually, is that John is going to show us that even in these events, in the in-between, actually, there are things to learn about who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. There are actually things that he's going to show us that speak of Jesus' identity, that speak of Jesus' mission. So the first thing that we see is the hidden, uh, the hidden revealed. The hidden revealed, that's in uh, verses 38 to 40. I'll read them to us again. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might have permission, sorry, that he might take away the body, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, uh, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Uh, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. What we've got here is actually two men who don't really feature prominently in the Gospels. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, well, he gets his first mention here. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, but this is the first time that we meet him. Nicodemus, well, he gets a couple of mentions in John's Gospel, but he'd hardly think that he was one of the central characters of the book. But these two men uh, that uh, look after Jesus after his death, look after his body, share a few things in common. We're told in different places that they're both in the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the Jews. And it would seem that they're both actually men of means, that they've got money. Joseph, we're told elsewhere, owns this tomb, which is in the capital city, the sort of prime uh, location. Uh, Nicodemus here is able to supply a large quantity of myrrh and aloes for the body. So obviously he has some uh, money behind him. But interestingly, John ignores these sets of details. These are things that other Gospels Uh, tell us really. John just tells us really one thing about them both, something that they share in common, that they were both secret believers. Do you see that there in verse 38? He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And what is the detail we're told about Nicodemus? 
Well, Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that idea of coming secretly, coming without people knowing. So the detail that we've got here is that they are actually both secret disciples. It's possibly that they're, uh, they belong to the group that John had mentioned earlier in his gospel. So on the back of your notice sheets, you'll find some verses there. There's John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. This is what John has told us earlier in the gospel. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's possible that at that point in the gospel, that's who these people were. They were disciples, but secretly so. They feared what the Jews would do to them. They feared what the Pharisees would do to them. Well, now something has changed, hasn't it? Joseph sticks his head up above the parapet. Nicodemus, if you like, who'd come by night, now steps into the light. And actually, if you think about through John's gospel, that's something that's been a theme again and again, stepping into the light. Joseph here requests the body from Pilate. Now, this was not a common event. You couldn't just go up and sort of say, oh, can I have the body? Usually, bodies of condemned men were thrown into a sort of communal grave nearby. They weren't given a proper uh, burial. That was probably the fate of the two criminals that had been crucified at either side of Jesus. Now, incidentally, if that had happened, it would have been nearly impossible uh, to establish that Jesus' body uh, had, had risen, if you like, from the grave. There wouldn't be an empty tomb because it would just be in a mass of bodies. So despite really what's going on, Joseph does us a massive service, doesn't he? And did massive service to future gospel witness by providing this tomb that we could see was definitely empty. But in requesting the tomb, he declares himself to be a follower of Jesus. He's come out of the shadows and into the light. And Pilate grants his request. Now, as we've seen Pilate over the last few weeks, uh, we've seen that he's a bit of a stirrer, haven't we? And this is probably him trying to stir it a bit more, uh, offering to give the body uh, to people rather than throwing Jesus in a mass grave. But he grants his request. And Nicodemus comes bringing myrrh and aloes. Now, it was a common practice at the time for Jews to embalm bodies. Uh, Bodies would be placed in in tombs to decompose. And once the bodies uh, had decomposed, they'd be moved later on into sort of small boxes uh, called ossuaries. uh, Because these bone boxes sort of took up less space to sort of move them around in the tomb. What that did mean is that tombs were used again and again. There's this idea, you know, you could be laid once there and then, you know, you'd be moved on and somebody else uh, would be laid there. And most of the time, these tombs would have several shelves uh, for bodies. So there would be several bodies uh, in a tomb at once. And new bodies would be added as people died. That meant that the tomb would actually be accessed while the bodies were decomposing. So to mask the the smell, which would be very unpleasant, and to aid decomposition of the bodies, spices and ointment were applied to them. And that's what Nicodemus is doing here. He's doing a, a service to Jesus uh, and to his family by providing the myrrh and aloes uh, for him. Now, myrrh and aloes, we're told, are used. And again, this is a detail that John tells us that isn't so specific in the other ones. It's spices uh, in the other Gospels. Myrrh and aloes are only mentioned one of the time together in the Bible. They're there in Psalm 45. Again, on the back of your notice sheet, uh, you'll see that there, that there's Psalm 45, verses 6 to 8. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Now, we looked at this psalm, actually, last year, didn't we? Uh, it's a wedding psalm, if you like, that's supposedly used for the kings, uh, the Davidic kings of Israel uh, and Judah. Um, it's not too much of a stretch to apply it to Jesus, though, because actually in Hebrews uh, 1, verses 8 and 9, the rest of that psalm, uh, the rest of the verses that we've just read, are applied to Jesus. So here, it seems to be sort of picking up on this idea of this Davidic wedding. Now we've already seen again that John has been showing us again and again that Jesus is that Davidic king. He's that new David that is to come. But it's a bit of a surprise really that in this psalm it's not the language of suffering that we've seen again and again. Actually this is the language of a wedding. This is the language of a joyful celebration. Yet when are these myrrh and aloes used with Jesus? Well they're used when he's dead in a tomb. Somehow in a strange sort of way, the grave is being used as a, a picture of a, a sort of celebration. A marriage, a uniting of people. Sounds a little bit strange, does it, for a, for a dead body in a tomb? But this is not a million miles away, is it, from how we normally understand and explain the gospel? The wedding being described in Psalm 45 is a picture of the wedding of Christ to his church. So think about that picture. Christ won a bride for himself. How? He does it by his death, by laying down his life. This fits exactly with the idea of the tomb. Think Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's actually a picture of Christ and the church. He laid down his life to sanctify the church, to save the church, to wash the church. So as he lays in that tomb, it's to sanctify his bride, that he might present her without spot and wrinkle. You see, without Jesus' death, there is no wedding. Without the myrrh, there is no marriage. But with the myrrh and aloes is the making of our marriage. Do you know this morning that if you're a Christian, you are the bride of Christ? Here is your husband laying down his life for you. Here is him enduring death for you. We talked, didn't we, last week about uh, wanting a friend or a king like this as we saw Jesus in his splendour dying on the cross. Well, wouldn't we want a husband like this? To be the bride of Christ. I know it's a bit weird for men to think of yourself as wanting a husband, but um, that's the way it goes, isn't it? You know what I mean. We are a bride. Could you think of a better husband than the one we're presented with in the gospel? Could you think of a better husband than one who would go through this for us? Who would go to hell and back on the cross? Who would die for us? It's a bit like that uh, Brian Adams song. Uh, from the 90s. I don't, I'm, I'm a child of the 90s in a way. That's when I did most of my music uh, stuff. Though actually it was on the radio this morning. Uh, you know, everything I do, I do it for you. Sort of the idea of longing after someone. 
Yeah, I would fight for you. I'd lie for you. Walk the wire for you. Yeah, I'd die for you. Now, leaving aside the lying bit, isn't that what people want in a husband? One who will sacrifice? One who would die for you? Well, here is what Jesus did. This is what he was always going to do. Don't forget that actually myrrh was the gift right at his birth. This was always where it was going. And it causes these once hidden believers to come out into the open. To actually stick their head above the parapet. Well, is it any different for us? Well, we can be secret believers at times, can't we? We can be tempted not to wear our faith on our sleeve. And I think it's getting harder and harder to do that, isn't there, as we face more opposition. I know someone who tried to be a secret believer once. Uh, They went away to uh, a university summer school. And uh, they were getting picked on at school. It was quite hard. And they decided, you know what, I'm not going to tell anyone I'm a Christian. I'm just going to have a quiet week. And, and the story goes that, you know, the, the weekend began and sort of carried on. But then some of them wanted to, to buy some alcohol. They wanted to do something they weren't supposed to do. And, well, the Christian had to say, no, I can't do that. Well, why not? And it soon came out into the open and spent the rest of the weekend being asked all sorts of questions and things. But we can try and keep it secret. But we have no need to keep it secret, do we? If we lived in Saudi Arabia, then you'd think, well, maybe that might be a good reason to keep it secret. But even then, I don't think that's a given. But the cross here made these men bold. They came out of the shadows and into the light. And no doubt, they suffered for it. You know, they went to the governor. This was a public thing that they were doing. But I bet you'd tell you that it was was worth it. In life, they have been these secret, sort of half-hearted believers. But now, the cross has done something to them, hasn't it? It's galvanised their faith. And we won't see the true fruition of this until Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit comes and makes all the believers bold. But think about it, for us, well, we have both, don't we? We have the cross and we have Pentecost. Shouldn't we be bold? We certainly shouldn't be invisible believers, should we? Now, that doesn't mean that we ram it down people's throats. That's a very unpleasant experience, isn't it? But what it does mean is that we're open about our faith. Even if it means sticking our neck out. These hidden believers get revealed. So that's what we see in our first point. These uh, hidden believers are revealed. Now the story moves from more the people to the places. Our second point is the garden revisited. Let me read to you verses 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now again, John gives us details that aren't mentioned in the other Gospels. He mentions that this takes place in a garden. That's an interesting choice of language, really, isn't it? To to mention this is taking place in a garden. Why the mention of a garden? Well... The Garden of Gethsemane that we sang about earlier, it is mentioned in John's Gospel, but only in passing. You don't get the whole scene where Jesus is praying to his father there in the garden. It's not even mentioned by name, it just says that he was in a garden. The big garden in John's Gospel is here. So why mention a garden? Well, the story of the Bible begins in a garden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, created by God, placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden. 
It was in that same garden that mankind walked away from God, rebelled against him, told God that they wanted to live life their own way, doing their own thing, doing the one thing that God had forbidden them to do. And death came into the world. Death was the punishment for our rebellion against God. We were hearing a little bit about that earlier on from Richard. Adam and Eve were warned that if they rebelled, they would die. And Adam was told in that very garden that on the very day that he rebelled, he would die. And the first Adam there had death pronounced on him by God and on his offspring as the judgment for sin. Well, here is Jesus, the second Adam, the new Adam, taking the punishment for that sin. He's taking the death in that tomb that came in the first garden. It's not his death alone that he's dying. He's taken that great curse of death that was pronounced in the garden. Death began in the garden, and as Jesus dies, it ends in the garden. The new creation, uh, sorry, the first creation began in the garden, and we'll see next week that the new creation begins in a garden. So it's no mistake, it's no passing comment that John uses this language. He wants us to see that something really big is going on, something of cosmic importance, something that we are part of. Because we are Adam's children, aren't we? And we've been watching the, the Narnia series with the boys and just started reading some of the books to them. And you get all the way through, don't you? Daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. Because that's what we are as human beings, isn't it? We inherit uh, our, our likeness from our parents. Uh, I don't know if you uh, are encouraged by that, knowing that you inherit things from your parents. Um, my mum this week was listing off all sorts of health problems uh, that she's got. And say, well, you know, your sister's got that one, you've got that one. Because we all inherit things from our parents. I've got eyebrows that meet in the middle. Because my dad has eyebrows that meet in the middle. We all inherit things. And you might want to say, well, that's not fair. I sometimes think that as I've got to shave my eyebrows. Uh, You know, it's, it's not fair. But it's not unfair either, is it? It just is. And maybe we could argue that it was unfair Except that we do the same things that they did. We merit that death, don't we? We may have inherited this debt from our parents, if you like, but we spent our life adding to it too. But that's what makes Jesus' death in the garden so relevant to us. This debt, this was him paying our debt. This was him dying our death. Taking away our stain of original sin as well as our very unoriginal sin that we do over and over again. So that something very amazing can happen. Jesus' death takes children of Adam and makes them children of God. Not only is our debt paid, but we are placed back into his family. That's grace, isn't it? That gives us above and beyond what we deserve. So that one day we'll be with him forever in another garden. But more of that next week. The other thing we see in this section is that Jesus is laid in a tomb where no one else has been laid. You see that there in verse 42, uh, sorry, end of 41? Uh, In a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Other Gospels report this too. Luke tells us exactly the same thing. Matthew tells us that it was a new tomb. Three out of four Gospels mention this detail uh, of the story. Why is it so important? What's so special about this being a new tomb? Well, the answer is, there's absolutely nothing special about this tomb. 
That's the answer. That's what it's trying to tell us. This is nobody's tomb. Nobody's ever been laid there before. It's not like Jesus was put in the tomb of some great prophet or some great king of the past. It's not like the the, the tomb itself has some sort of special power that will raise Jesus from the dead. It's not going to be that there's some old prophet's bones in there that will raise him. You might think that sounds superstitious, but it happens in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 13, 20 and 21, we see some of these bones raise someone. There's all sorts of ways that people rise from the dead, but it's always with some intervention from something else. But if Jesus rises from the dead, then it's not just that the right bones are next to him, or, you know, there's something special about the place where he's laid. Because if that were true, well, he's no more special than the guy who landed on Elisha's bones. But when Jesus rises from the tomb on the third day, no one else will be able to take credit for it. Not Elisha, not Elijah, not anybody. God himself must do this because it's nobody's tomb. There's nobody else there. Or ever has been there that could raise him from the dead. The tomb will be gloriously empty because it was absolutely empty before he went in to it. So this is something new. This is something that we haven't met before in the Bible. As I say, people are raised from the dead in the Bible. It's not completely unheard of. But someone being raised from the dead without anybody raising them, that is something new. So just as his birth from a virgin's womb means he was untainted by sin, so his burial in a virgin tomb means that we can be rescued from sin. Because it's empty. And he alone can do it. He alone, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, were responsible for raising Jesus from the dead. This will be God's doing, unmediated by man. God's sheer power. He needs no assistance from people to complete his mission. So what does that mean for us as we think about Jesus' great power to raise himself? Well, it means that we can have confidence in Jesus, doesn't it, for all that we need. He didn't need anybody else. He didn't need some special uh, circumstances, some special tomb. So we just need Jesus. Not Jesus plus some special circumstances. Not Jesus plus some special formula. Not Jesus plus some special uh, place. Not Jesus plus some special person like a saint or a prophet or a priest. Not Jesus plus our own obedience. Not Jesus plus some secret knowledge. Not Jesus plus a second blessing. Not Jesus plus some special technique. Just Jesus. He is all that we need. We do not need another We do not need anything else. Because he didn't need anything else. He was sufficient in himself to raise himself from the dead. The tomb was empty before he got there. There was no one else had done anything to it. And it shows us that he is all powerful. He is sufficient. He's all that we need. His resurrection power does not belong to anybody else. It's his alone. But he shares it with us as he brings us to life spiritually. Raising us from the dead. So we see here that so much is going on, don't we? This is not crimbo limbo or Easter limbo. This is not some filler in between two more exciting stories. This shows us that Jesus is all that we need. This shows us how Jesus' death has a profound effect on his disciples, changing them from hidden to open. And it shows us that his death had a profound effect on history, reversing the curse of death, 
that we were cursed with in the garden. Our bridegroom who gave his life for the bride. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he needed no one else to raise him. Uh, Father, but you alone uh, did it. Father, that he he alone uh, rose from the tomb. Father, thank you that his death makes uh, his disciples bold. And we pray that you give us boldness this week, Father, as we head out into the world. Father, help us not to uh, keep our heads down, uh, but Father, to be willing to stick our heads up and be known as disciples of Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.